Section 4 of the Letters of a Post-Impressionist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Solog. The Letters of a Post-Impressionist by Vincent van Gogh. Translated by Anthony Mario Ludovici. Section 4. Introductory Essay, Part 4. Personally, although I am prepared to do all honor to Van Gogh for having been profound enough and brave enough to come face to face with the tragic dilemma of modern art and modern times, I must say that I am almost inclined to share his own doubts as to whether his was precisely the hand to limb the man of great promise even if he could have found him. Only fanatical disciples could praise and value his figure pictures to the extent to which they have been praised and valued. For in all but one or two cases, they are, in my opinion, the most incompetent and the most uninviting examples of his art. Of thirty-eight figure pictures of his which I myself have seen, only two pleased me a little. Old Man Weeping probably in the possession of the family, and an asylum warder, belonging to Fräulein Gertrude Müller, of Solothurn, and one, fair girl's head and shoulders, probably in the possession of the family, pleased me so exceedingly that I would willingly give all the rest for it. It is a most genial piece of work, mature and rich in conception, and full of a love which will come to expression. Nothing obtrudes in the technique. Indeed, the means seem to be so well mastered that one feels not the slightest inclination to consider them. While the content is so eloquent of the sleek, smooth bloom of youth and of the half-frightened, eager spirit of the young girl who is just beginning to see and to realize who she is and where she is, that this picture alone would make me hesitate to say definitely that Van Gogh could not have achieved his ideal if only he had lived, and if only he had found the type whose pictorial advocacy he might have undertaken. Here in this picture, all the dramatic effect of budding womanhood, of which Schopenhauer spoke so scornfully, is concentrated into a head and a pair of shoulders. All the mystery and charm of mere potentialities, undefined and still untried, is told in a thrilling and fairy-like combination of lemon yellow, black, Prussian blue, and the most delicate of pinks. The freshness is that of an old Dutch master, like Johannes Hannot, for instance, who could paint fruit to look cold and raw on a pitch-black ground. This virgin, too, like all virgins, is cold and raw, and the effect is due to the masterly and almost devilish skill with which her qualities have been marshalled in her portrait, against a pitch-black ground. It is a wonderful work. Maybe it stands as the only justification of all Van Gogh's otherwise overweening aspirations. In any case, it makes me feel that if he had lived, he would have learnt to regret even more than he already did that no artist-legislator existed 
to inspire his brush and give his art some deeper meaning. With regard to the rest of his figure work, I can only say I am unsympathetic, and to those who may accuse me of philistinism and the like for my refusal to agree with the extravagant encomiums they lavish upon his figure pictures, I can only reply by pointing to Van Gogh's own modest and very sensible words. Any figure that I paint is generally dreadful, even in my own eyes. How much more hideous must it therefore be in the eyes of other people? And now what did the admirable Gauguin have to do with all this? What part did he play in this final development of his friend's genius, and in directing his brother artist's last thoughts and hopes? We do not need to be told, we feel sure from our knowledge of the two men's work, that Gauguin played a great part in Van Gogh's life at this time. We also know that Gauguin was an older, more able, and more experienced painter than the Dutchman, with a personality whose influence is said to have been irresistible. It was in vain that Van Gogh tried to hold him at arm's length. It was in vain that he pointed to the narrowness of Gauguin's forehead, which he held to be a proof of imbecility. In the end he had to yield, and was, as Gauguin declares, Forcé de me reconnaître une grande intelligence. Quand je suis arrivé à Arles, says Gauguin, Vincent se cherchait, tandis que moi, beaucoup plus vieux, j'étais un homme fait. Van Gogh sans perdre un pouce de son originalité, a trouvé de moi un enseignement fécond. And Van Gogh was as ready to admit this as we are compelled to recognize its truth. Writing to Albert Aurier, he once said, Je dois beaucoup à Paul Gauguin. But his latest and best work, as also the ideals and aims of his last years, constitute the most convincing evidence we have of the great influence Gauguin exercised over him. And although the older man was ready to acknowledge that the seeds he sowed in Van Gogh fell upon Antoine Fécond, it is impossible to overlook the great value of these seeds. For who was this magician, the painter of those sublimely beautiful canvases, L'Esprit Veille, Portrait de Monsieur X, and Enfant? He was a man who had felt more keenly than any other European painter of his day the impossibility of consecrating his powers to the exaltation and glory of the modern white man, with whom he was fatally contemporaneous. He was a deep and earnest thinker, who was both clear and brave enough to confront even a tragic fact. And there could be no doubt that comparatively early in life he came face to face with the truth that the modern European, and his like all over the globe, could not and must not be the type of the future. Anything rather than that. Even black men and women were better than that. Cannibals, idolaters, savages, anything. And this parched thirst for a nobler and more positive type drove him like a haunted explorer all over the world, until at last he thought he had found what he wanted. It was an illusion, of course, and he would probably have admitted this, but it was the love and not the hatred of man that drove him even to that error. Charles Maurice ascribes Gauguin's lust of travel to the nature of his origin. 
He argues that inasmuch as Gauguin's father was a Briton, and his mother a Peruvian, the great painter was born with the desires of two continents already in his soul, a fact which somehow or other Maurice links up with Gauguin's visit to the Marquesans and the Tahitians. But probable as it may be that Gauguin's double soul contributed greatly to his ability for making a clear-sighted analysis and condemnation of Europe, it can scarcely be regarded as the principal, or even as the partial cause, of his visit to the Marquesas Isles and Tahiti. That his mission to these places was a supremely artistic one is proved by the manner in which he spent his time there, while the fact that it was discontent with and scorn of European conditions and people that drove him in search of better climes and nobler types is proved by his behavior both in Tahiti and in the Marquesas Islands. Although we do not forget that Gauguin had been a sailor, if it were merely a sort of restless wanderlust, a l'Americaine, that sent him to Oceania, why did he do all in his power to fight Occidental civilization in these parts? If in his heart of hearts he had not been utterly without hope and without trust where Europe was concerned, why did he start a paper at Papite, in which he sought to convert the colonists and educated natives to his hostile attitude towards the European. Why, too, did he jeopardize his peace of mind, as well as his safety, by taking the side of the Marquesans, when they implored him to defend them against their white oppressors? For we know that he was not only arrested, but heavily fined for this action. It is obvious that Gauguin was much more than a mere itinerant painter, out for new material. He was above the modern senseless mania for rugged landscape as an end in itself, or for tropical sunsets and dramatic dawns in the South Pacific. And when we read Van Gogh's words on the native of the Marquesas, we can no longer doubt not only that Gauguin influenced him, but also that this influence was deep and lasting. Personally, I feel not the slightest hesitation in accepting Gauguin's own words, quoted above, concerning his relationship to Van Gogh, and though I ascribe the latter's final positive and human attitude in art very largely to the soundness of his own instincts, I cannot help feeling also that the spirit of that half-Breton and half-Peruvian magician was largely instrumental in determining the less-traveled and less-profound Dutchman to assume his final phase in art. If Van Gogh had had more opportunities for figure-painting, and if his hand and eye had grown more cunning in the art of depicting his fellows, I am of opinion that he might have surpassed even his master and inspirer. For that isolated event, that sport, the portrait of the fair girl, which was, alas, the one swallow that did not make a summer, remains stamped upon my memory as a solid guarantee of his exceptional potentialities. Unfortunately, however, he came to figure-painting all too late and his opportunities for practicing his hand were rare and more or less isolated. In these letters, he says, I suffer very much from having absolutely no models, while in a letter to his brother, not included in this volume, he writes rather amusingly as follows, Si on peignait lisse comme du bougereau, les gens n'auraient pas honte de laisser peindre. Je crois que cette idée, que c'était mal fait, 
que c'était que des tableaux pleins de peinture que je faisais. M'a fait perdre des modèles. Le bon putain, un peu de se compromettre, et qu'on se moque de le portrait. There is now only one more point to be discussed, and I shall draw this somewhat lengthy essay to a close. I feel, however, that it would be incomplete without some reference to Van Gogh's personal appearance. Whatever democratic and over-Christianized people may say to the contrary, a man can be neither ugly nor good-looking with impunity. Looks are everything. Appearances are deceptive, is a proverb fit only for those who are either too corrupt or too blind to use with understanding, and profit the precious sense that lies beneath their superciliary arches. Van Gogh's personal appearance is, therefore, in my opinion, a most important matter, for I absolutely refuse to believe that beauty can proceed from ugliness or vice versa. I leave such beliefs to those who have ugly friends or relatives to comfort or console. Then the doctrine that a fine mind or a fine soul can sanctify or transfigure any body, however foul, ugly, or botched, is, I admit, an essential and very valuable sophism. Now I am in the unfortunate position of one who has only portraits to judge from. But although I have seen only portraits, perhaps the number of these is sufficiently great to justify my forming an opinion. In all, I have seen seven portraits of Van Gogh painted by himself and one painted by Gauguin. The best and by far the most beautiful of all these is Van Gogh's portrait of himself, now in possession of Leonard Tietz of Cologne. If we take this as a trustworthy record of Van Gogh's features, he certainly must have been what I would call a good-looking man. His brow was thoughtful, his eyes were deep, large, and intelligent, his nose was not too prominent, and it was shapely, while his lips, both full and red, gave his face that air of positiveness towards life and humanity, which we find both in ancient Egyptian and present Chinese countenances. The only faults I find with his features and general coloring are, first, that they are inclined to be a little too northern and too Teutonic in type, a fact which suggests that his positive attitude to life was more intellectual than physiological, and secondly, that his furtive eye suggests more timidity than mastery. This portrait is, however, a remarkable piece of work, and taking all its other qualities into consideration, I see no reason to doubt precisely the accuracy of the likeness. A genial work of this sort is not genial only in particulars. If, however, we are to judge from the other portraits, especially from the one in possession of Herr Tutine Nolthenius of Delft, then we must certainly agree with Meyer Graef that Van Gogh was by no means engaging in appearance. I mean by the expression unengaging that a face is negative, chaotic, misanthropic, resentful. And in two or three of the portraits by himself, Van Gogh certainly does give the impression of being all these things. I should only like to remind the reader that in each of the ugly portraits, the technique and general treatment is so inferior to the work in the picture belonging to Tietz of Cologne 
that one is justified in suspecting that the likeness had also suffered from inadequate expression if we now turn to gauguin's portrait of his friend in the possession of frau goshawk bonger we do indeed find an interesting if not good-looking face though the northern and barbarian features are perhaps a little marked the question is was gauguin able to seize a likeness i have every reason to believe that he could and i am even prepared to accept his uncorroborated testimony on this point speaking of his first arrival in arles on a visit to his friend van gogh he says j'arrivai à arles fin de nuit et j'attendais le petit jour dans un café de nuit le patron me regarde et s'écrie c'est vous le copain je vous reconnais un portrait de moi que j'avais envoyé à vincent est suffisant pour expliquer l'exclamation du patron lui faisant voir mon portrait vincent lui avait expliqué que c'était un copain qui devait venir prochainement thus i have attempted to make clear what i personally have learnt from van gogh and what i believe to have been the course of his development and of his aspirations in the process of my exposition i have spoken about stages and periods in his development in life as if they were well defined and plainly to be detected in his work and i have even instanced particular pictures which i regard as more or less characteristic of his four manners or styles i should like to warn the reader however that he must not expect to find these stages and periods as clearly defined in the mass of van gogh's life work as his essay may have led him to suppose he would for the purpose of tracing this dutch artist's career it was necessary to speak of these periods and stages as if they had been more or less definite but as a matter of fact not only do they overlap each other to such an extent as completely to invalidate any claim to the effect that van gogh's progress was regular and gradual but often his pictures as well as his thoughts of the first and second period after the manner of harbingers tell so plainly what will be the aim and the triumph of the next or even ultimate period that it is impossible to fix or even to find exact boundaries all that there now remains for me to do is in the first place to offer an explanation as to the inordinate length of this introductory essay by pointing to the fact that nothing of the kind has previously been done for the english reading public and that i therefore felt my task of introducing van gogh might be done both conscientiously and exhaustively without my running the risk wearying the reader and secondly to express the hope of that this introduction may prove as helpful to the student interested in van gogh's work as i feel it would have been to me at the time when i first set out to study the life the aims and the works of this remarkable and much misunderstood dutch painter anthony m ludovici end of section four recording by elizabeth solog bethlehem pennsylvania